You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. photographer with a passion for the outdoors and a determination to capture amazing moments through his lens. Throughout his youth, Aidan uncovered the power of photography and its ability to communicate special moments with others. Despite landing a dream job as a photographer for a major newspaper, Aidan followed his instincts, leaving his work to travel overseas, uncovering the wild and devoted world of highlighting. Aiden's drive and persistence has seen him become one of the world's best Highline photographers, evident through his accolades and global coverage. However, he still maintains his humble nature and his commitment to refining his art. We're here with Aiden Williams. Aiden, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Aidan, you described to me that success for you uh, is being able to live your dreams and achieve your goals, and we'll come back to that later on. You grew up in Falkenbridge, which is in the, the mid-Blue Mountains, about 100 k's west of Sydney. Tell us about growing up in the Blue Mountains and what that was like for you. Well, in hindsight, growing up in the Blue Mountains was a blessing in disguise. I, as you said, grew up in Falkenbridge and now I'm living in Mid Mountains, Linden. But just being exposed to the outdoors, not having any restrictions with the city and like a claustrophobic environment, it just really pushed me almost into what I'm doing now in the outdoors and just loving um, adventure and being in nature and, and just having lots of fun in the outdoors. So, yeah. I know you were a keen cricketer growing up. What were your other passions uh, as a child and a teenager in the mountains? Um, so cricket, soccer, uh, arts, but especially photography was my main passion. Um, and that's kind of come through at the moment, but I've been lucky enough to combine all, all three. So. And you described to me that for you, family is the most important thing, uh, a very supportive family. What role did they have with you growing up? Yeah, so my family gave me the freedom to to follow my passions and love and to really push the limits of what was possible. They were always there, not saying, oh, you can't do that, you should do something else, like get an office job or something that pays, pays well, but really saying, well, if you want to do that, make it happen, uh, we know you can... Uh, you can do whatever it takes to achieve this. So they're really, really supportive in, um, in me following my dreams and passions. Did you find your parents, I guess, as role models, were they, did they lead through their actions or was it more verbal? Um, it was more verbal in the sense because in their, in their actions, they weren't really, um, they're not very creative, both of them. I don't, <laughs> I don't get my creativity from them. Uh, it's through my, like, uh, my auntie and uncle, um, but yeah, it was more the verbal components, like just giving me a lot of freedom. But then when I do something, they might just say one thing like that was amazing, Aiden, or keep going. Just those simple things that really 
uh, in hindsight made a difference to me and, and really gave me the support to, to follow those dreams and passions. And your older brother, Cal, um, what kind of role did he have growing up? Well, <laughs> it was, as any siblings, there was a lot of rivalry there and, um, and he really pushed me to, to prove myself like there wasn't any love lost there, <laughs> especially with sport and like in the front yard playing cricket, he'd be bowling as fast as he can, even though he's three years older than me and I'd be being, co- I'd be copying it left, right and center. But, um, yeah, I think really looking back at our childhood, he really, that, that element of him pushing me to prove myself has really helped me now where I'm always looking to prove myself to whether that be like an employer, a sponsor, even to myself, just saying, you know, you can do this. Even, even being so uncomfortable that you're crying, you're, you're physically in pain, but going, I'm going to prove this to myself. I can do this. Yeah. And the Blue Mountains, as you know, is famous for its outdoor adventures, rock climbing, hiking, canyoning. Um, I know for myself, I've probably only come to realize that recently that there's some hidden gems around the Blue Mountains. Did you get involved in, in the outdoors uh, beyond sport as a kid? And were you aware of all these amazing, I guess, areas of the Blue Mountains? Well, it's, it's funny because when I was growing up, I was always hiking and, and doing things in the bush. But because I was playing, uh, playing, like, playing soccer all through winter and then cricket all through summer, I kind of limited myself that... I wasn't doing those outdoor recreational sports like rock climbing or slacklining. Uh, so it was like even even about three, three and a half years ago, I only really came across the amazing climbing and highlining in the Blue Mountains. So I just feel almost, I don't know what the right word is, but I don't know why I was so oblivious to those things, but I guess it's it's a blessing that I have come across it now. And I think it's, I've found, it's, it's chatting to people from outside the Blue Mountains and they say, oh, you've got this climb, you've got this canyon, and it's news to me. So I've been trying to make a concerted effort to get out and explore what is a beautiful area as well. Oh, definitely. And it, all it takes is someone just asking you a simple question about, oh, I heard about this amazing, uh, amazing climb or amazing canyon. You're going, oh, I didn't even know about that or why haven't I done that? Uh, and I live there, but... I guess that's like all areas, you kind of take it for granted, but you're, um, you're going through this path now and like me for the last four years where I'm almost rediscovering where I grew up, which sounds really funny, but. <laughs> Post-school, uh, what did you do with yourself and what were your amb- ambitions um, you know, as, as a 17, 18 year old? Well, when, when I was coming uh, into the last two years of high school, I'll just give you a bit of context. I really found my groove and I found out that I could turn photography and art into a career. So I just decided that I was going to throw everything into uh, my HSC and I was going to make this my career. So I ended up just putting in all the extra time and effort and then following that, I thought, well, I can either go to university or I can go to TAFE. And university at the stage was just purely theoretical. It wasn't really going to give me the backing and experience to go into an editor's office and say, hey, give me a job because I don't have that experience. So I I found that going to TAFE 
uh, really helped me because my lecturers were industry professionals working for for time, for life, um, for for Vogue, all these famous magazines, and with with famous celebrities and uh, and athletes. So I really really took that head on, and it kind of spurred me into to believing that this really was possible, and and that was so nurturing uh, through that experience. And the start of photography at high school was it a passion outside of school or was it taking a subject on at school that, that uncovered it? Because it's, it's something that it it is quite a niche thing. What exposed you to photography in the first instance? Well, I'd always been doing photography since I was about five. I was just playing around with like disposable cameras. Those what those little Kodak ones that give you about 21 shots. You take on class camp, you have fun. You probably don't do anything with the photos, but it's just that moment of capturing something and going, how can I um, go through this class camp and document it best? But then when I, when I got to about year 11, I had this art teacher, um, Anne, Anne, Anne Marshall, and she really kind of exposed me to saying, well, actually, if this is a passion of yours, you can take it as far as you like. And she was my visual arts teacher and she really nurtured me through my final two years of high school and just kept on pushing me saying, well, that's great, but I know you can do better. And, you know, like through that part of high school, I knew nothing technical. I was just, I had a camera. I thought, well, I pressed the shutter. That'll do, you know, like I've got a good eye. I've got automatic settings, nothing to be ashamed about, of course. But yeah, I was just... I knew nothing about it, and I just loved the idea. So um, that's what really exposed me to it. And was the photography at school, was it creative in the sense? Was it sport? What what formats of photography did you explore? Well, I, growing up, playing so much sport and, and taking photos, all I was gravitating towards was that motion and movement of sports photography. So I just wanted to be like those famous photographers, um, who were working at the cricket, the big games, and and that's what was really driving me. And it was kind of a compliment. Uh, it was complimentary because in the classroom and going to a, a non-competitive high school, I was forced to going out on the weekends and shooting those sports because I wasn't getting it in school. So that really pushed me, um, pushed me on the outside. But in the classroom, I was knuckling down and saying I need to learn these these elements of photography because I knew nothing <laughs> and your TAFE degree was it theoretical practical how did you approach that uh so through my degree at TAFE it was mainly practical and that's what I really wanted from the degree because I've never been someone who loves being in the classroom I don't really know who does you know there's someone out there who does um and nothing against that but I wanted to be doing something I wanted to be uh, you know, hands on putting something I'd learned to use and and really um, implementing that. So yeah. Once your TAFE was finished, um, at some point you decided to explore the world, take a one way ticket around, and, and travel yeah. around. What spurred on that motivation to to see what was out there in this in this world? Well, it kind of started where I was still in my degree at TAFE, and I was just pushing every element going all my idols are working for the big papers, you know, the Sunday Telegraph um, or the City Morning Herald or, you know, The Age, The Australian and or an agency like Getty Images. So I was just exploring every uh, option saying, 
this is what all my idols do. This is kind of what I've loved. And I got into that. I was working for um, all of them. I was working for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Daily Telegraph and then Getty Images. And I was, I was like, wow, this is my dream. You know, I'm living, I'm photographing these amazing athletes. I'm doing the big games. But it just kind of wasn't fulfilling there. And just to, to jump in there, how, how did you get that opportunity to be shooting for those major papers? Because that's no small task in itself. No, it's not a small task um, in itself at all. It's I was just reaching out, just being a cold caller and sending a thousand emails and, and nagging their photographers saying like, please let me go out with you. Let me um, do like an internship. Let me do work experience. Just give me a chance. And, you know, like I end up doing an internship um, at the Daily Telegraph, which which led to work and same with the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and Getty, but it was just literally persistence, and I'm not afraid to say that I was just an absolute pest, and like, I apologise to all those guys now, because I was like, you must have been absolutely sick of me just sending you a thousand emails, and, you know, advice, and calling you, and, but, you know, it's what it takes. And was there one particular person who gave you that break in the industry? (sighs) Probably my editor, the Daily Telegraph, Jeff Jarmanin. He... You know, unlike other editors, he really nurtured like my passion. He knew that I was raw and fresh to the industry, and but being a seasoned professional like he was, I think he saw that that drive in me, and he wanted to actually take that and go. Well, this kid wants to be here. He's actually um, pushing his dreams. I guess he could relate in some sense as well. And going through those harder experiences with other editors. Um, you know, they're not very friendly, you know, they, they're dealing with other press photographers all the time. So they treat you like one and they may be like 30, 40 years of age. So when you're, let's say 2021, they don't have too much sympathy for you. So he was really, you know, like saying it in not saying, um, constructive feedback in a nice, positive way. When in reality, he probably could have told me like, mate, that's, that's terrible. Don't bother shoot it again rather than going, well, this is, this good, this element's good. How, how could you, how could you shoot it differently? Like, so it really kind of took on that nurturing role for you. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I really cherish now. And he's a really good friend of mine, uh, to this day, but that, yeah, in hindsight was one of the best things that really, uh, really happened to me in my young career. Because if, if I kept on having bad experiences with editors and with other photographers and, you know, like, anything you kind of you don't want to do it anymore you lose your passion and drive for and you go oh well maybe this isn't the industry I really hope for so and as a 21 year old at that point was your mentality that I've made it I've made it as a photographer no and still to this day I think I haven't made it and it's I think it's just being realistic about the situation because I don't know if you ever can make it because it's such a an open, um, an open field because, and there's so much competition around that you can't really be settled and, and pat yourself on the back and say, well, I've made it. I'm, I'm okay. Now it's going, okay, I need to get better because there's someone like I was, um, nipping your heels and saying, well, I'm going to take your job. Um, so yeah. And so you've got to a degree, the world at your feet as a young photographer, you're working for all the big papers, did you feel that you gave it all up to go traveling? Was it literally, I'm, I'm leaving this, 
opportunity for just to see the world? Yeah, it was. I I was working at the Daily Telegraph and I um, I went on this little trip to give some context to Tasmania. I was, I was like, I need a break. I just need two weeks in the outdoors. I'm going to go to Tasmania. I just booked a car with a little, um, little tent and I was like, okay, I'm just going to drive. No plans whatsoever. And then on the last day of this trip, I'd been driving around. I heard from one of my idols, Krista Wright, that she was photographing this sport called highlining. And I was like, what's highlining? Like any keen photographer looking at their idol going, well, I want to do that. And I'd only heard this. And I came back home. I was still working at the Telegraph and I thought, I'm going to look up. I'm going to find what this is. I'm going to throw myself at it. Not even knowing what it looked like. So I, I'd been searching all the internet. I'd been looking on Instagram and social media and there was nothing. There was nothing. It was, it was blank. And eventually I found, I found someone doing it and they were doing the Blue Mountains. I was like, how can they do in the Blue Mountains? I'm here. Like, why am I missing out on this? How have I been so oblivious and um, no excited about this? And I, I reckon I messaged him for probably about a month saying, please, man, like, you don't know who I am. I don't really know who you are, but you're doing what I want to do. Please, please just let me come out. And eventually he did. And it was like a Friday afternoon at sunset. I got maybe 20 minutes to shoot. I didn't get anything good, but I was like, this is amazing. There's this, there's this person walking on like a one inch piece of slack line how can anyone do this? Like you've got this perfect narrative, like this person walking through life, you know, and I was just hooked. What, what was the hook? Was it the, the scenery, the adventure component, the extreme component? What really drew you in that first time? Pretty much everything. I, I just loved being outdoors and seeing this vast landscape and this, almost, this person almost walking through thin air. It's just... It's magical and I still get the same tingle now when I'm shooting as when I first started because it's, it just really captured my imagination. I thought, wow, like why am I shooting these people that are in a big stadium? You know, yes, a hundred thousand people, but this person is in nature. They're almost walking on nothing. Like this is where I want to be. And it just, it was honestly magical. Do you think your passion for photography comes from the ability to showcase maybe the things that people don't know about? Because highlining, as you say, isn't necessarily mainstream compared to our big sports. Is that what drives you, uncovering these hidden gems? Yeah, I think it does now that now that I think of it. And even coming through mainstream sports, you always want to shoot someone, uh, shoot something that no one's seen before. And when I, when I found highlining, I thought, I can literally show the world and these amazing landscapes that people have probably only seen on a postcard or, you know, they might've seen on their screensaver, but now I'm going to, going to these locations with these amazing athletes and these people are almost walking between it and they're doing this amazing sport that no one's probably seen and no one's witnessed. So it just, it was just a, a drive of mine and it still is to showcase one, how, amazing these athletes are but two how much how amazing these locations are that it kind of started where I grew up but now I'm showcasing these locations that people have never seen before so you're listening to the passion and perspective podcast 
Brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. So your overseas adventure then, was it driven by the chase of the highlining or was it more just the, the opportunity to get abroad? Yeah, it was. So I once I discovered the sport, I was hooked. These guys were throwing me a lifeline and they said, no no photographer lasts with us. I just went, oh, like this, I, I'm hooked, but you guys don't want to be with me. And then they went, but do you want to spend the weekend with us? And, and I was is, like... Is this in the Blue Mountains? This is in the Blue Mountains, my first ever time... Uh, photographing the sport and I just thought you know what I a few weeks later I thought well let's quit my job and I quit my job at the Telegraph and I booked a one-way ticket to France I thought well I know people are doing it over in France I'd heard through a friend and seen like a couple of photos and just went you know I'm gonna throw myself at this I've I've got nothing to lose I'm 21 yes, it's a massive risk and all my friends are finishing their degrees at uni and, and saying how comfortable they're going to be and there's nothing wrong with that. But I was like, this is my dream. I'm going to chase it. And you know what? If I come back in a month's time and I have nothing and I've thrown myself at it, then I'll get on with life. I've given it my best shot. You said at the start of the show, your family, uh, your parents, your brother, very, very supportive. What was their reaction when you told them you're quitting this job and then heading overseas? <laughs> well... I don't think it really sunk in. I, I told my dad first and then my mom and my brother. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm booking a one-way ticket overseas. And they kind of went, oh, okay, cool. But I don't think they realized what I actually said. And it kind of crept up. And then within like two, three weeks of me leaving, they're, they're like, oh my God, this is what you're doing. You know, be safe and take precautions. But I think they were very supportive and as any parent does, they're very caring and, you know, slightly worried for you. But I think they backed me. They just thought that this was what I wanted to do and this was a real passion of mine that I'd come across. And I think it's important as any young person to chase those dreams. And they thought, well, you know, he's prepared to fail. He is. But if he comes back and he has, that's almost a better lesson in itself, that he's tried something that he's really passionate about, but he hasn't gotten there. But that what if, what if he finds something he really yeah loves? So you arrive in France, one-way ticket. How planned are your adventures, or are you going day by day? It, it was day by day. I, I teed up in about two weeks from when I arrived that I, I would meet up with one of the best slackliners in the world. And that sounds really funny for someone who's been photographing it for you know, a couple of weeks, but I just reached out to him like I reached out with the first slackliner and I just thought, you know what? I have nothing to lose with him. And eventually he said, you know, you can come spend some time with me. You can shoot the projects I'm on. He just thought probably I'd photograph a bit and go away. But in my sense, I was like, wow, I've already gotten with the best. I got to prove myself. So I, I had that planned in a couple of weeks, but I was just like, well, I'm arriving in Paris. I don't even have accommodation for my first night booked. Where am I going to stay? And it was very much, um, 
wing it. Like I, I think I just, I stayed a night at a, like a, maybe an Airbnb or something, just booking, no, a hostel, um, correction. And I thought, well, I'll figure something out. There's people down South. I'll get myself down South. I'll take a train. You know what? I have nothing booked. I'll go down there. And even if I'm down there, I'm here. At least that's one thing. I've got myself sorted for that. But yeah, it kind of, it just kind of un- unfolded that, that, that planning for maybe a couple of weeks, month at most turned into six months. And I was, I was over there living my dream and just one Highline project to the next. And that very first Highline project with the world's best. Yeah. Where did that take you? It, it was, it was in Switzerland. It, um, so we, like the first day I arrived in Switzerland, uh, with Samuel Vollery, um, who at the time held multiple world records. And here I was probably having about a hundred photos of slacklining. <laughs> so it was a bit of a contrast, but yeah, he, he just took me, um, down to Versam, which is uh, two parallel bridges about 70 meters high. And his, um, his company Slacktivity has a professional team, which is he, which is, uh, which he's part of. And we, I ended up meeting literally his whole professional team, which were Slackliners from all around the world and the best. So all of a sudden I've arrived a couple of weeks into it. I'm on this project with a world record holder and some of the best Slackliners in the world. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Like, but almost saying like, this is the best opportunity. Like what a moment to sink, <laughs> like, but also what a moment to swim. Like, <laughs> and how did you find that balance between wanting to get the right shots, but also not wanting to be a pest to guys who are obviously trying to get mentally and physically prepared for this yeah. incredible act? Well, one of the best things about slacklining or highlining is they're just so relaxed. You know, they have just so much ease because when you're on the line, you can't be rushed, you can't be frantic because otherwise you're just going to fall. So it's all about being calm and that kind of reflects off the line. So one of the things that really helped me was my enthusiasm. And that's probably what's kind of helped me throughout this process, even with press and agency photography, just enthusiasm. If you have enthusiasm, it's almost infectious. So you hope people kind of pick up on that. And they could tell that I knew nothing about what they were doing. I, I knew absolutely nothing. And I was, I was going into it going, well, I've kind of seen a few guys back home doing this. And I love what it stands for. And I love photographing. But I had so much to learn. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to be a pest and really ask the, the hard questions and the dumb questions. <laughs> and, but I'm going to learn through this. And that was something I, I loved I loved doing, even though I was so out of my depth. And in terms of getting the right shot, was that just a matter of literally trying everything? You know, shooting from underneath, shooting from horizontal, shooting from above. Were you just out there trying everything? Yeah, it was because I didn't really know the sport originally. I was trying literally everything going, well, this might work, that might work. And, and these photographers or these athletes are kind of looking at me going, okay, he's got enthusiasm. He's, he's running around being like headless chook. But at the end of that project, even though I was running around, I had no idea. I'd come back to them. I'm like, Hey, I've got these photos. And they'd be like, Oh my God, that's great. And I'd be like, is it like, <laughs> so you're making, making mental notes, I guess. Yeah. Along the way. Just making mental notes about 
one, the athletes that I'm working with and, um, and the lines and, but just making sure that the angles are correct and their posture, like what looks good and understanding because every athlete's technique is different. So you're, you're making these mental notes about what looks good, what doesn't, how these athletes are moving, what they're going to do, because a lot of these athletes, they're not just walking in a straight line. They're doing tricks. They're like, they're going, um, they can do handstands on the line there. It's, it's crazy what they can do. So you're like, okay, just trying to calculate. And I had a diary that was full by the end of the project because I was just writing down every note about the athletes, about the lines that we were doing and yeah, just about what really worked and what didn't. <laughs> and that experience in that first six months must've been, I guess, a whirlwind time. Roughly how many Highline trips do you think you went on in that first time? Like different projects? Different projects, yeah. Different projects in six months. Probably about 30. And that was, at that stage in the, I'd been to about 25 countries in that period of time. All through Europe? All through Europe, South America, North America, yeah, so it was it was a whirlwind not just for the projects and the like the different athletes and um, the different climates and locations, but yeah, just for the period of time going to twenty five different countries. Like <laughs> most people don't do that in a lifetime. No. <laughs> and was that you literally word of mouth chasing these athletes, trying to get on the trip with them? Yeah, I I was just hooked. I was going, I'm going to make this work no matter what. I'd hear someone saying, well, we're on this project in Switzerland. Next, we're going to go, we're going to drive into France or we're going to drive into Germany or we're going to fly to Greece. We're going to do all these different projects. And I'd be like, what's the line like? Or is there an opportunity for me to be there? And I, I just kind of talk my way into it not knowing where I was actually going or like what it actually involved. And you'd have these lines, which were some of the biggest at the time. And, and they might be 560 meters long and you're going, yeah, I'll just go there. Okay. There's a position you want me there. Let's go. And did you find in that time, were you starting to get an understanding that, Hey, this could become a career. This could become a way to make money, a way to, to live a life. Yeah, but in an uncomfortable way. I was kind of scraping by and I was... There's an old climbing term called dirtbagging, which means like living on almost nothing and like what's around you. And and I was, I was sleeping in a tent. I'd, I'd spent... I think I equated maybe like a week or two in an airport, like sleeping in an airport by the end of, of the trip just because... You're in an airport, you're flying out, you're arriving in the airport, it might be late at night, and then you're driving in the morning. So I I was just scraping by, and you know, I was getting a few paychecks here and there, and that was enough to support my travels, and and I was like, I didn't care. I didn't care whether, you know, this, this thought of, well, I, I could be doing this in 10 years, and I might not have a dollar in, in my savings account, but... I'm getting by. I've got a roof over my head. I've got food. I'm doing what I love. That's all that matters. And at the end of those first six months, was your thought, hey, what a ride. I'm glad I did it. I'm going back home. Or were you coming back home knowing that you were going back 100%? By the end of that six months, I from going almost from nothing to 
going on world record projects and with the best athletes and on some of the toughest projects that still I've ever been on, I just was exhausted. I was like, okay, it's time to go home, refresh. And then within three months after getting home, I was off again. I knew this is, this is what I wanted to do. And I knew that a small, a small reprieve, you know, seeing family, seeing friends, touching base, sleeping in a bed. Um, that, that was what, it, what was important at, the, at that time. And then I was off again. And, and you're very humble in nature. Do you think people back home, friends, family, realized the, the size of the work you were doing and, and I guess the adventures? Did they comprehend what you'd been doing those past six months? <sighs> probably not. They probably didn't have a full understanding of what I went through. I gave them a small glimpse of what was going on in these projects and what the project was like. And, you know, I'd post photos, um, send postcards back home to mum and dad and, you know, my brother and fa- um, and friends. But even my mum was like, if you're doing something dangerous, I don't want to know about it. Be sensible. So that kind of that element I'd restrict from them because I knew even even times where I was in the tent and crying and just physically in pain going, what am I doing with my life? And then I'd be like, no, this is amazing. Like the next day I'd be like, I don't want them to hurt. I don't want them to go through that. I don't want them to see that, you know, I'm rappelling off a 200 meter cliff. You know, no mother wants to see that. So I'd kind of put a, a filter on for them, but I'd, I'd still be honest about if they asked like, Hey, did you go out in the Highland? Are you doing this? I'd be like, yeah, I am. For you, after those three months, you're going back overseas again. Did you have that planned out, or was it again literally? I'm going. I'm going to see what's out there, and I'm going to go with the flow. Um, a lot of what I do is with the flow, but it, probably that trip was the first one where I thought I'm going to do a project that I really want to do. This is my idea. Like normally, I was I was being asked to go on these projects with other athletes, but this was the first time where I was like. I've seen a highland in Iceland that I really want to do. I'm going to make it happen. So I got in touch with a few Icelandic athletes. There's two in the whole country. <laughs> only two. Um, believe me, I checked. But yeah, that was the only part I really had planned. And I just thought, well, there's always things coming up. There's always ideas about people going, well, I'm going to rig in Chamonix in, uh, in South France. Okay, well, I'm going to get myself there. That sounds like a better project. Or, and you're always weighing up these different, these different projects. What's going to be best from a photographic point of view? But also, like, if someone's doing a world record, you want to be there. At what point, Aiden, did you feel like, hey, I've made a name for myself. I've become the guy... People want me, but there's also a chance to start making a bit of money out of this. Um, it was probably probably at the end of my first six month trip, where I was on this on this project in Patagonia with an Australian crew for a month, and we were just slogging it out, you know, with forty kilo backpacks, hiking through muddy trails um, for about 75, 80 kilometers just brutal you know you're carrying climbing racks you're carrying highline gear and then photography gears last and you know i'd come back you know from this and i just have like swollen feet i'd burns i'd be like in agony going i thought i was fit but i'm not um not that not that level of fitness 
And I remember coming back to a, a hostel after this huge, huge project and a friend had messaged me and I thought, okay, you know, I checked it because there was limited, limited Wi-Fi, and I got a bar or two and my photo was in National Geographic. What? And I went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> this doesn't happen. Like The magazine. Yeah, the magazine. And it was there and it was even a cover in Greece, like the front cover of the magazine. I thought, wow, this is all worth it. I, I can go through so much pain and agony. And yeah, there's those small rewards which um, really get you through. But this was just something which I dreamt of. You know, when you're studying, when you're growing up, you're reading the magazines. And this is, you know, where some of your idols are, are publishing work. This this just a, doesn't happen to a young 21-year-old photographer. So that was where I really thought to myself, wow, I don't think any other person is really doing slackline photography professionally but also I can I can make this a career and we'll come back to I guess some of those accolades and and recognition later on where where are some of the most spectacular places that the highlining's taken you you're literally going to some of the most beautiful parts of the world are there a couple that stand out to you yeah um one of my first projects like a month or two in was it to Zakynthos which is a famous island in Greece and it's um it's called Shipwreck Beach and you can only get there by ferry and you know thousands probably millions actually of tourists go there every year and we were highlighting over the beach which is about 580 meters long and and about 200 meters high and we were just highlighting over all the tourists and and it was amazing. Like, but that's probably in my top three. And then probably Nezere in in Portugal, which is on the I think it's on the west coast, and it has some of the biggest waves in the world, over thirty meters in size, and you're seeing um, the best biggest uh, best big wave surfers in the world going there. And we were highlining there. There's a small pillar out in the ocean, probably about 30 meters out, while these waves are coming in, and we were highlighting there. So, and that's where one of your more iconic shots has come from, with the wave crashing by the highliner. Yeah, that's where probably my most famous shot at the moment. Um, I call it freedom, but yeah, that's that's where it came from, and that was just a spur of the moment, thinking this would make an amazing shot. There's people that could read this line. I could rig this line. I'm going to make it happen. Um, so, so going there and making that happen, it's. I don't regret it for one minute. It was one of the most beautiful places, still. Yeah, for me. And what's the balance in terms of you saying to the Highlanders, "Hey, there's a good shot. Let's do it," and them coming to you saying, "I want to do that line. Can you shoot it?" What's the split? I think the difference is probably when I started, it was them telling me. Which, actually, still to this day, there's a balance. I think there's a balance um, where they'll tell me about an, an idea that they've had in mind. But especially when I first started, they were just telling me. They would tell me and go, we're rigging this line. Nothing to do with the photo. Nothing. Whereas now, they might rig a line and they'll say, hey, do you want us to use this anchor point or this anchor point? And I'd say, well, actually, you're going to use anchor point B because this is going to be an amazing shot. And they, I think, just that trust 
now they know me, they really trust that if I say, hey, do you want to get up on the high line? Let's do a night photo or let's, um, let's go and high line under the Northern Lights. They trust me 100% because they know that if I say something, it's, it's going to be worthwhile. So I think that's, it's a really important thing, not just for the photo, uh, but yeah, that trust really, really helps. And the technical components that come into it in terms of your 200 meters above sea level, you're out in the ocean with these big waves. How have you managed, I guess, that extreme sports side that has to go with the photography? Well, I really had to learn because I had, you know, growing up, I hadn't really come across um, climbing or even abseiling, just anything to do with ropes. I wasn't really exposed to it. So when I, when I came across and was doing these projects, I'd have to be learning. I'd have to be asking these, uh, these athletes, Hey, how do you tie this figure of eight knot? How, how, like, how am I meant to repel, you know, and getting these, these devices and getting a harness and like getting myself into these positions and just learning as fast as I could to be able to one, not hold up the tomb, but just be prepared for anything. Um, and like, just dealing with these situations that you wouldn't like you, you're not going to be shooting into a 30 meter wave. Like who does that? Do you think that ability to, to be the first person to, to be that unique shot that's driven you and I guess push you through those, to be honest, terrifying moments. Do you think that that drive to be, to get that special shot has, has kept you going? Oh yeah, for sure. That just that special shot drives me every day. I'm always thinking about whether I'm on the road or not. I'm just thinking, how am I going to get the next best shot? How am I going to do this? What locations would be great for a highland? I'm just always thinking and researching. And even before going to a project, like we did a project from the Eiffel Tower. So we rigged a line from the Eiffel Tower right on the main uh, main beams to the Trocadero, which is about 670 meters long. And I was researching everywhere on Google Maps, on photos, the best angles and how I was going to shoot it, what time of day I was going to shoot it, what position looked good. Because slacklining isn't very fast. Like these athletes are walking slow because they're balancing on a one inch wide uh, piece of webbing that moves. You know, they're not going to be running because they're going to fall. So you need to be really patient. And there might be a position that you know looks good. And you, you'll have to wait hours for them to get there, to that position. And you go, click, there we go, we got it. You know, you waited. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So it's a really um, fine balance, you know, between getting all those um, components and combining them. So Literally a fine balance as well. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, you were featured in on the cover and in an article in Wild Magazine recently, um, and he talked about that how I guess there was a bit of a sense of, of disappointment. You're quite upset with I guess how that played out. Have there been times throughout where you've been quite scared, not in the sense of I'm um, 300 meters above sea level, but scared in in the bigger picture? You know, scared with what you're doing and am I doing the right thing and and is it worth it? Um. I think short term, definitely, definitely. It can be really extremely overwhelming and like I can be really disappointed where, you know, there's moments for everyone where you have a breakdown and you think, wow, this is so hard. You know, it might be conflicting personalities. You might be dealing with an athlete who just literally has no time for you 
or or the project and it's being just selfish to other teammates or you're just going through a really rough trot and you just think like why am I here like you might just be crawling up into the fetal position going I'm just wasting my time here I just want to go home I just want to be in the comfort of my bed why don't why don't I just get an office job and then you'll be like no Aiden what are you thinking like you've busted your butt to get to this position you've worked so hard even on this project don't let this small thing in like in the larger picture turn you down you're just gonna make this work no matter what and yes tears and being uncomfortable and being upset like that's part of it you know that's that just shows that you care about what you're doing so do you find you're quite critical of your own work compared to others highly like i think i get told a lot that i'm too harsh on my own work i i just know that there's going to be other photographers taking amazing shots and i just want to be pushing the limits of what's possible um so i'm always telling myself you know like if it if it's a great shot i'll i'll tell athletes and people that it's a great shot i'll tell them and they know that if i'm telling them this it's a great shot because I don't, I don't give myself compliments often, but a lot of the time I'll be finding ways that I can improve. And it's not, it might look from the outside that I'm being highly skeptical and negative in my own work, but I'm not, I'm just giving myself constructive criticism because I know that my standard needs to be the highest because if I'm working for these magazines, if I'm working with the best athletes, I need to be producing and I want to be getting better. So just that urge to get better, I just push myself. And I guess being you know, constructive to myself can look really harsh, but that's what drives me and that's what pushes myself because you know, I'm extremely self-motivated in that sense. And I think that self-criticism for anyone chasing a career is so important as well because you need to set your own high standards Um, and at the end of the day no one cares more about your work than yourself as well you're listening to the passion and perspective podcast brought to you by sporting chance media for three decades penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the western weekender whether it's the weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence the weekender truly is the heartbeat of penrith Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Aiden, has there any been, t- been any times where you've been in a really terrifying position, almost like a, a life and death type situation? Yeah, there's a couple just to mention. Um, on this project in Zakintos, I down climbed without ropes 200 metres. I don't know how I found myself in that situation. And it wasn't just sheer. Like, it was... Um, it, it did work its way around a bit, like, along a ledge. And I I was like, okay, I'm fine on the way down. You know, I climbed down. And then when I was shooting, I looked up and I went, oh, shit, I need to get myself up here. I And just almost accepted. Like, it's very rare that you accept your own, own fate in a way. And that sounds really dark. But I kind of accepted. But... In the same sense, your mind and body does this strange thing. When you do accept that, it, it almost go, you almost get this like extra strength or this extra will to go, I can make it. I'm just going to do whatever. It's just that survival mode. And 
I managed to climb up and I kind of looked back down. I was like, just never let that happen again. And it just was, it was so scary. And I was terrified and just getting to that point and reflecting on that moment, it, it, it still terrifies me a bit to this day, thinking about how I got myself in that situation. And yeah, I didn't get the shot because the angle didn't work out after all, but you thought, well, okay, you learn from it. But probably one of the, um, the scariest that I've still come across, I was in, um, the Valley of the Gods in Utah, which is just in Canyon land pretty much. And we're doing this project between this ginormous towers. It was about 500 meters apart. And one of my friends was saying to me, he's like, I want to do a sunrise walk. And sunrise at that time was like 6am and he needed to climb a hundred meter tower to get up to the lines. And then I was going to go to the far anchor. So that, that involved the big 500 meter walk plus scaling up the tower. So pitch black, I've got a head torch on, I've got my trusty podcast on and I was listening to something motivational by like Jimmy Chin or another professional photographer. And I was like, yeah, you know, just going through my thing. And I was starting to scramble and I looked and I was like about five, 10 meters away from me. I just froze. I thought, crap, what is that? And it was a cougar. So a massive mountain lion. And I was just like, and like you think about that it's pitch black. You've got your head torch on and you're barely seeing something just in front of you and you can just make out the outline. And I was, the only way literally to get up was past it. So I was just like trembling almost. I've got this podcast still playing, like trying to pause it. Like I don't want to attract any attention. Don't create any noise whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah. And eventually I was like, you know what? I'm going to down climb around it and, and just get out of the way. Like, get out because was, was it awake and alert yeah it was awake it was standing and it was looking at me and i and i was like these are aggressive like holy like what am i gonna do like do do they react to movement is it like standing still like a snake thing like what happens <laughs> i had no idea because we don't Australia, have many of them in australia no <laughs> too many um but i i just like slowly was backpedaling i was like okay i'll go around, you know, so it doesn't really, it doesn't really see me once I've down climbed, you know, okay. And I remember going around and just thinking, is it following me? Is it following me? Has it, is it stalking me? Does it know like, like that I'm prey? Like, oh my God, like how do I find myself in this situation? And meanwhile, I guess the athlete's on the other side yeah. going, I wonder where Aiden's at. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got his phone and radio and everything like that. And I, I remember like scrambling up this um, this rocky rocky ledge and getting to the tower and I was like still shaking. I had my podcast still going. I was like, oh my God, how am I shooting? Like, what have I just come through? Like, and I ended up shooting the, the sunrise and everything like that. And, I got one of like one of my favorite images that morning and I was like, this is amazing. Like, but what happened? You're almost pinching yourself saying, how did I find myself in that situation? And am I, am I like imagining things? But then I was like, no, you literally had a head torch on this animal that's five meters away from you. 
And, and then I was thinking about it. And I was like, oh my God, maybe the podcast was actually what saved me in that situation that in this podcast, there's three voices speaking like over each other. And maybe this animal thought, well, there's a, there's a, a light. Maybe there's like multiple people. A group of people. Yeah. And that's, that's what probably saved me by the end of it. But I was down climbing hours later and here's my footprints and up to a stage, here's its footprints. Following you. Yep. Wow. So you've had the the terrain, the 200 meter climb, you've had the animals. It's quite an adventure that you've been on. Yeah. And that's probably just, just like the tip of the iceberg, really. Just... We'll have to do a follow-up podcast where we go through all your terrifying moments, I think, Aiden. Yeah, we have a lot of content for that. <laughs> I know this is a question you, you get hammered with uh, non-stop around highlining. I can understand the situation in, in, in Utah where you've got to get the rope from one anchor to the next. How about the ones where you're literally going from canyon to canyon or from in the, in the ocean from, from land out to an anchor point? How does the rope get from one end to the next? Well... There's not really a simple way of answering that because it really depends on all the different lengths of line and location, like with logistics. Because if it's a small line, like let's say 50 to 100 meters, you can use a drone. You can just fly across um, a piece of maybe fishing line or um, like bungee cord, something like that, and then you can bring the line over by pulling it over. But... But then when you start to get these lines, like say in Zakintos, you have to think, well, we have to fly a drone or walk the line around to a certain point, And then we have to bring the rest of the team to, you have to get really innovative with it, with the process. And even like one of the recent lines where, um, we're reading the world record at the moment, which is two kilometers. Two kilometers long. Two kilometers long. One, and and one, how high, all the height is irrelevant the height, world record. The height, well, it's irrelevant, but the height of it um, was 250 meters high. And that was over um, an asbestos mine in Canada. And a safe asbestos yeah. mine. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, a very old one. But, yeah, with that, it requires building an anchor just, uh, like, down the bottom bring the line down and then bring it down from the other side, building another anchor. And then you've got um, almost a lake in the middle where you have to bring another line over via boat and you have to, and then at some stage you have to raise it all at the same time. Otherwise if one end pulls and the, the other doesn't, you've got this, sh- uh, this sheet, 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 what's sheaf? What's the rock? The sheer rock. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, that's right. It can be cut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you've got this really sharp rock from the mine that if you only pull from one end and you don't raise at the same time, it just slices the line in half. And you think, well, there's twenty thousand dollars worth of gear that's just been cut. Project over. And I guess it's a thing where the inches matter. So the, the tension you have to get for these athletes would be crucial as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, you have. Um, dynamometer which is like a force reading device you have on the anchor point so that it will tell you the force that's in the line so that if you think oh okay this is you know too loose the athlete might actually be going towards the water level because it's slack the line it's not tight 
Um, but then you want it tight enough so that they're not walking in the water and they're high enough and, you know, they're not walking just uphill, you know, that's on the way back, you know, that's going to be really hard for them. So, you know, forces really, and tension play a huge part in whether a lion's walkable or not, because even, even in Greece, there was a, a 580 meter lion that people walking 70 meters uphill, so with, with the tension, they're walking 70 meters uphill on a piece that's one inch wide. And you think, well, even 70 meters uphill on the ground is hard enough. Aiden, you've had a, I guess in a relatively short career, some really great accolades. You won the sports category for International Photography Award. As we said, you featured in National Geographic, including the cover, Wild Magazine, plus others. What's that feeling been like and what's that meant for you to, to have that, I guess, recognition on a global scale? Well, it's huge. You know, when, when you're growing up, you, you think to yourself, wow, if I can win an award or, you know, if I can get something published, that's, that's what makes you a, uh, a professional photographer, really. And when I started winning these awards, um, it kind of was a bit overwhelming because I thought, wow, like, have I made it? And I was like, no, Aiden, you haven't made it because you, you have a long way to go. But it was just, it was really humbling because you just thought, wow, people are recognizing what I'm doing. And it's not just, you know, mom or dad. And it's not just these athletes. These are people that might be the best photographers or best editors in the world. And you're winning some of the biggest awards in the world. And you're getting published in probably the biggest magazine in the world. And you're getting a cover like of that magazine. And did you have the chance to reflect in terms of the, literally the hours and hours and hours and the calls to the Daily Telegraph and, and just taking on these free opportunities, did you have the chance to reflect and say, hey, it's been worth it? Yeah, and I think those really hard moments on these projects and probably on those long flights, you know, long flights from the other side of the world where you've got 30 hours to think about <laughs> whatever, you just really go through these moments and you go, actually, Aiden, like, you really need to reflect on this. You need to enjoy the moment because... Before you know it, you're going to be in another hard situation. You're going to be um, trudging through the mud and really trying to take that next best image. And that might not come for a long time, like years. So, you know, I've been very lucky with these awards and um, with the publications, but it could have easily been years that I was just pushing and pushing and pushing and no no reward whatsoever. So I think going through that, that process... Um, really helped me and I even started writing in a diary um, comprehensively about these moments going, okay, just get it out on paper. You know, it's there. It's there for eternity and I can reflect on that as well through time but this is what I was feeling in the moment. Speaking of in the moment, take us through what it's like for you when you are in the moment shooting and you're looking down the lens, you're looking at the scenery, you're looking at these incredible athletes. What are you feeling at that Point in time, calm. I, I just feel really calm and composed in that moment because I know that even whether it's a really instant project where I've gotten a day's notice before and I've just driven uh, or taken a night bus or you know taken a quick flight, I know that I've prepared for that moment and I know that whether it happens or not. I've done the best I can. So 
this is the fun part where I get to shoot and make that make that moment and really just enjoy that experience because I could easily just be running around crazy and yeah, that does happen at stages where you're not getting the shot, but most of the time I'm just calm and composed because I just honestly love what I'm doing and it's it's what I've dreamt of doing and my passion and and when you finally get there it's it's just like it's all worth it. So Aiden, do you do you believe that you find yourself in life or that you create yourself in terms of do you think the path is already there set for you or you need to shape your own path in life? I think I, I need to shape my own and I think that's a really important thing of of growing. Just that uncertainty and finding who you are and you know, you're always changing and evolving and just going out there and you might have this dream or this passion that you'll you you might know like oh I want to do photography but you're going out there and finding it you're finding that love for it and that uh, that passion that drive to keep going and I f- I really feel like for me I had to go out there and find it I knew who who I was as a person but I needed to go out there and find find how far I could really push my limits because. I think it's so easy to be comfortable and, and that's, and that's good. But I really felt like I needed to go out there and really push myself to, to find how, how much I can grow and, and who I am. Um, that doesn't really make sense. No, that's pretty insightful. That's a great <laughs> answer. And, and, and what's, what's next for you? What's the next project that you're looking at? Um, you mentioned that you've got a few things happening locally. Yeah. So I, I've taken a little bit of a break to come back home, enjoy myself here, um, plan, plan for the next few, few big projects, which are more locally based, uh, which I'm really happy about, you know, the travel can take its toll and, you know, I love it, but in the same sense, you know, it's nice to be home with the family, but I've really been wanting to grow with the community here in Australia because it's, it's been evolving, but yeah, I've been overseas, not really growing with it here. So I'm really looking to to do some local projects with them and 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 work with some big brands like Canon Australia and Red Bull Australia, so that um, I can get these dream shots. Aiden, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for your openness and sharing those stories. Before we do wrap up, uh, give us a plug to your website, social media, uh, any shout outs that you'd like to throw in there. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and, and listening to my story if you get this far through the podcast. <laughs> um, but you can find me at www.aidenwilliamsphoto.com or if you're on Instagram, Aiden Williams Photo um, with an A-N. So yeah, if, if you want to reach out or if you have some feedback on how I've been uh, rambling on, please let me know. I'd love to hear it. But um, no, thanks, for, thanks, Jono, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Aiden. All the best, mate. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by the Western Weekender.